Welcome to Inaudible. My name is Jeremy Wyland, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Masterson. On this podcast, we discuss the weird, beautiful channeled messages found in the archives of organizations like LL Research, Circle R, and others. The archives contain transcripts of messages from allegedly discarnate sources who articulate a philosophy of spiritual evolution. If you would like an audio version of the transcripts, please subscribe to Ryan's other podcast, Living Love and Light, available on all platforms. Ryan and I will try to provide analysis and commentary on the philosophy described in these messages, identifying the common themes and grappling with the application of this information to our human lives. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Good morning, Ryan. How's it going? Good morning, Jeremy. It's another wonderful morning out here in the Pacific Northwest. How are you doing? It's pretty good here, too. (laughs) Nice. Uh, We, uh, we... We were having some really warm weather, some really nice spring weather. And oh my God, yesterday I was at my uh, nephew's two year old, uh, two, two year birthday, mm-hmm. about an hour north of here. And it had been like, you know, nearly shorts weather. And all of a sudden the wind picked up and we got like not just a snow shower, but like this weird snow that looked like hail. It was the size of hail. But when you picked it up, like I put a piece in my mouth and it was like, uh, it was almost snow cone consistency, super soft. Wow. And like, it just like trees were sideways, just blowing in the wind. And this, it was just dumping for like five minutes and then blue skies clear. Just the weirdest weather. That is crazy. That is crazy. I I mean, I literally was 80 degrees to like two days ago. Like, yeah, just bizarre and we've been getting a lot of that so when people talk about climate change i'm inclined to believe them even if they don't have all the details exactly right because i've seen some weird weather but like that just blew me away like well that's weird that's crazy i wish i had more in my uh meteorology toolkit that i could (laughs) understand oh it's a hyper low pressure system that you know buffet you know came into a, whatever it was. I wish I had a good, I wish I could understand like what causes that craziness, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in general, it just seems like, uh, we have gone from having four seasons to having two for the mm. most part. And then there's like this weird period between summer and winter where things just kind of go all to extremes, right? You're over here, then you're over there and then you're over here and then you get to winter and it kind of stabilizes and then yeah. spring comes and it's like hot, cold, hot, cold. And then summer happens and it's super hot. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Where where I grew up in the Spokane Valley in Washington State, we lived right next to this hill called, well, they used to call it the Holiday Hills because even before I moved to the neighborhood, which was in the late 80s or early 90s, this snow, the ski resort, if you want to call it, had been closed for 10 or 20 years already um, because they used to get enough snow on this thing where you can actually have a small little ski season <laughs> on this itty bitty hill. And um, that was before the climate change narrative, you know, really took uh, hit the mainstream. And it's funny because um, if I remember correctly, even back back in the 70s, there was a climate change narrative, but it was on the flip side. It was mm-hmm. <laughs> there was fear of cooling. But, uh, but in any case, I always thought that was interesting that, um, 
they had a little snow resort just literally one mile from my house on this little hill um, that was closed. But anyway. It's out. interesting that you frame that uh, experience of yours in terms of what you called a scientific narrative, because I think that actually plays into the topic that we want to talk about today. Mm. <laughs> um, yes. I, I, I see it in very similar terms, um, setting aside the truth or falsity of the narrative, right? Whether it predicts our experience or not, it is a narrative. It's limited. Mm -hmm. It is a straightforward way of understanding what otherwise is a lot of chaotic, conflicting and anomalous data, right? And you're trying to make sense of all of this stuff, synthesize it together and see a bigger picture. And that's kind of what, that's kind of what the scientific uh, approach is about. It's about trying to see the bigger patterns and trends, um, knowing that the tools are imprecise and that not everything is going to match up to our ideal models of how things should work. And I believe the topic that we wanted to discuss today had to do with the interrelationship and, uh, you know, uh, a comparison between, you know, the concept of scientific progress and the concept of progress that we have in waking society versus the spiritual path and the spiritual sort of telos that we are all uh, striving towards. And the degree to, I, I, I'm really interested in the degree to which those two things uh, have a similar pattern, a similar sort of archetypal uh, function, and the also the degree to which they're very different, right? Mm -hmm. Very different narratives, as you put it. Yes, and I actually, again, the reason I love talking with you because the little things click in my mind whenever you, whenever I, whenever words come out of your mouth. Um, occasionally, it'll cause it'll be like the perfect key to just unlock something in my head. When you say the word narrative the way that you did and how it relates to science and spirituality. It's like they're two sides of the same coin and where science per se, I would say doesn't necessarily have a narrative attached. It's a series and set of facts that is trying to get to the truth about a particular thing. But it's like, here's fact A, this leads to fact B. If A and B, therefore C. Where on the spiritual side of that coin, you don't have necessarily the facts. You have a narrative. You have a story. And you're still, you're trying to get to the same truth. Um, but that just popped into my head. With, with narratives, we have stories, storylines. We have a way of understanding without the bit by bit fact by fact science um, that you might get in a physics textbook, <laughs> you know, or linear algebra textbook. So anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. Although I might push back a little bit on the idea that mainstream Western uh, science as it's practiced, as, as it's practiced does not contain a narrative. I think it absolutely does. I, I, um, wh yes. whether, whether that's, uh, intended or not, uh, if for no other reason, because of the, the, the position it holds in our society, um, I, you know, I would thousand only, years ago, but Sorry? I would only say that if it holds a narrative, it's because how we as humans make sense of things as yeah, a, that's, as a that's mass, what I was going. Yeah. As a mass of people, um, 
Yes, understanding um, the Krebs cycle, you know, and how, what is it, how plants turn sunlight into food with the chlorophyll. Um, understanding that step-by-step process is something a bit different than weaving the story together of that, oh, a plant breathes air, that it takes the carbon with the sunlight and it turns it into food. Um, you know, there's you can split out that science into the facts and then to the narrative with how kids understand it and how we as people understand it. Whereas spirituality, um, you have that same narrative, but it may not be tied to individual stack, individual facts that you can just zero in on. It's the story, it's the through storyline um, through which we gain better understanding. Well, I see the distinction you're making, and I, th- I think it's a good distinction. Um, the difference between uh, the detailed chain of causality that science tries to adhere to in explaining phenomena mm. uh, versus the the kind of consolidated narrative that we internalize to give ourselves, uh, I guess, a break from the mystery otherwise that would obtain from observing phenomena, right? Like, in a, in, to a certain extent, like, you know, we are divorced from that fact chain that you were talking about because we don't go and prove each of these scientific experiments for ourselves mm-hmm. personally. Mm-hmm. We are going on a bit of faith at a certain level. Now, 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 I'm not, I don't take that too literally. Like, we literally could go and replicate a lot of these experiments if we had the energy and time and will. Um, I think it's important to recognize that our scientific understanding is expressly a yellow ray social understanding of our shared reality. Mm-hmm. And in, 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 in one way, I would say that even when we're talking about the model of the scientific method and this uh, chain of causality that we are exploring in order to make uh, concrete, rational sense of our of, of the phenomena we experience. We still have a sort of meta narrative that is guiding that chain of causality. For example, like very basic logical concepts. Um, even causality itself is kind of a way of understanding phenomena that allows us to see uh, how things might work. Uh, Mm -hmm. That isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. the way things are per se. That's a really, (laughs) I feel like I'm just speaking gibberish now. No, we're Uh, trying to, you're trying, we're trying to, we're trying to piece it together because what, what, what popped it, what popped in my head, what spurred all of this is in the man consciousness and understanding um, transcript. When I was reading through that quite often, they bring up this idea of spiritual growth and how it, it, interplays with scientific growth, how it contrasts with scientific growth. And I had thought to myself, because specifically they are referencing our development of nuclear weapons, yet not having the spiritual maturity to say, yeah, we're not going to kill each other with this nuclear technology. We're going to create a new energy source that, you know, whatever, will lift more people out of poverty. Instead, we're trying to kill each other, right? And mm-hmm. what came to mind is, I think I brought this up before that long ago in one of our conversations that if tomorrow we had figured out um, anti-gravitic technology and we could 
travel, how these, you know, UAPs or UFOs travel the way that they're witnessed. How long would it take before your neighbor would complain that their Uber is late, that their UFO Uber is late? Oh, this is so dumb. I can't. I, it was supposed to be here 30 seconds ago. Oh, like yeah. how long, you know? That, and, that's like that that's like that Louis CK joke about the yes. guy complaining on being on the plane <laughs> and it's like you're on a you're on a you're in a can like 30,000 feet yes. above the you know going 300 miles an hour. It's amazing. How can you be And the you guy's know, complaining that the Wi-Fi doesn't work, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. exactly. And it and it it struck me that technology at a certain point is very close to money in the way that i've heard it said that whatever you are whoever you are money makes you more of that if you're a kind person and you're ridiculously wealthy well you have more opportunities to be kind you know and if you are insecure or quite a mean person um well your money is going to enable you to be more of that and it feels like technology is like that. It's like if we're impatient, yep. if we are immature, if we are entitled, if we whatever it is, just the more technology, the more tools we have, it just allows us to express that to a greater degree. And so I just wanted to talk about this concept with you. It's a little, again, it's a kind of a deviation from um, the standard Confederation material, but just the idea of contrasting spiritual growth with scientific growth and perhaps ways we can keep top of mind in our day-to-day lives okay how do i how do i keep perspective about about this idea about mm-hmm. that i am more than than this physical body and i'm more than the car that i own and the job that i have you know how to how can we keep perspective on that yeah, the uh, the the development of science in our lives and in our history is staggering, uh, and I think the thing that you're, I hear you tapping into, um, a very spiritual concept when you're talking about science's role in our lives, which is the concept of power. Power is a very basic concept in most spiritual philosophies and especially confederation philosophy. Um, it's almost like a fourth distortion, <laughs> mm. uh, but I, I, I say that jokingly, but um, I know that when the raw contact was occurring, uh, there was a point where raw said something like, you know, you three represent like three aspects of, of, of spiritual experience. You know, one is love represented by Carla one is wisdom represented by Don and then Jim represented power. And mm. a lot of his, if I understand correctly, cause I just did another read through of the, of the, of the raw contact material. And you can, there are certain points in there where Jim has questions for Rob about his own path. Mm-hmm. And that often has to do with like discipline and the correct use of mm-hmm. an application of power. Uh, I think that's very much at issue when we're talking about science, because Technology has afforded us a great deal of power, and it seems that that power is not balanced. The, hmm. the progression of that of acquiring that power has not progressed at the same rate as the progression of acquiring wisdom, and certainly yeah. of acquiring love. Yeah, that seems to be the fundamental imbalance that we're That's dealing actually, with. 
it's a great nuance. I apologize for interrupting. It's a great nuance no. that when we're when I'm talking about technology, you're right. That's not exactly what I'm talking about. It's the it's the it's the narrative underneath. It's the idea mm-hmm. underneath. It's what the technology enables, and I think power is actually a very good proxy, you know, or a very good uh, through line if we were to talk about all the different technology. Now, this is not to say. Um, that all technology is bad. And we talked about this just before we pressed record um, in the conscious channeling sessions and in the raw contact, it is brought up that the wanderer incarnation rate during the industrial revolution was exceptionally high, that lots of people came in to help pull humanity out of just the continuous poverty. And the industrial revolution did a great job of allowing people to generate the technology that allowed people to get out of the, what did we say, 12 hour a day, seven day a week um, life. Well, shoot, before the industrial revolution, wasn't it like 90, something like 95% of all jobs were agriculture? You worked on a farm and farming is a hard life, you know, especially if you only have an ox, <laughs> you know, or some cows to help you till the field and you don't have a tractor or combine, you know. So, um, so that is not to say that all technology is bad, but have we used that technology well? You know, have we used the time that we've gained back from the use of the te- that technology? Have we used it well? Have we used it to grow our spiritual understanding? Or have we used it to you know, just enjoy. I I wanted to say waste time, but that's not a fair, that's a judgment. I'm not, I'm not about to try to judge on people just spending time on Instagram. Yeah. Distractions. Yeah. Oh, distractions is great because I don't have to make a judgment call on that, but we can recognize it for what it is. It's yeah. Distractions. It's a great point. I, I think it's important. So when you talk about the wanderers coming in to make the industrial revolution, and I'd say also the liberal revolution that happened with the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and then 1848. Oh, great point. This sort of explosion of what I would call generally enlightenment philosophy, right? Yes. I think great that's what point. most how most people would see it. Enlightenment yes. philosophy that sort of poses a political new model to humanity that's ra- grounded ideally grounded in rationality. Mm-hmm self-determination, freedom, right? Like a, like a, like a, a new concept of freedom that was about individuality. Yes. Right. The individual being able to express himself maximally and that the social good comes from that. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As opposed to moral good comes from leadership. Comes from the king. Submission. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be a good subject. It's, I wish I could go back and a, a quick tangent. There are times that I wish I could go back to what it was like in the early 80s and just experience music for what it was so that I could really understand the power of Michael Jackson's Thriller when it was released because it was su- it was such a new sound from what I understand talking to people. Yeah, in the context of the times. Yes, and I wonder what it would be like to experience that Enlightenment revolution and just these new ideas that were starting to come out. Um, how cool that would be. Well, I mean, how <laughs> bloody, but right. how that's, interesting. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. At the time, uh, it was not seen always as positive. 
Mm-mm. even by people who didn't have uh, political power. I mean, remember, uh, one of the concepts of the Enlightenment of bringing light into things ties directly uh, to the concept of Satan at the time. I mean, mm. Lucifer is the light bringer. Mm-hmm. And even Ra uh, recognizes that aspect of wisdom, that it has this negative side to it. And that those who resisted the Enlightenment revolution sometimes were resisting it because they saw that, hey, the Enlightenment is going to give us power, the ability to organize on a different level, the ability to organize nature on a different level, uh, as well as people. And that um, they saw the dark nature of this. I mean, you know, there's a point in the raw contact where they are talking about the adept kind of distancing him or herself from their uh, friends and family, not because they want distance, but because that adepthood kind of shows them a different level of reality and they start having a harder time connecting with people. Mm -hmm. And they say the power of the map, it's not a complete, uh, it's a paraphrase, but it's like the, the magic is recognized. The nature is not right. They recognize the power involved in the path that that person is treading. And that power itself is disturbing. Hmm. Whether it's used for good or ill is kind of like a secondary concern when you're looking at it from the outside, right? It's a great point. And I think that's very much how people often looked at the Enlightenment and saw the chaos that it was creating. Yeah. And the, and the like, um, Napoleon uh, was able to harvest the fruit of the revolution into a completely mobilized nation state where every single man, woman, and child was focused on war, completely different idea from how wars were fought in the past. And the, the, the chaos it unleashed was incredible. Yeah. And he beat back, you know, Europe united, what, like five or six times. <laughs> yeah. He was a, he was a force. It's like the, uh, the tree of knowledge, that forbidden yeah. fruit. You're not, God was like, Hey, be careful. Don't eat that. <laughs> you know, don't, don't eat that. So, well, in, in the same sense that I'm talking about, um, a political side to this rational revolution, right? I think it's important to recognize that science and therefore technology have a kind of politics built into it. Mm -hmm. Um, this is something that, uh, a thinker from the, uh, early part of the 20th century, Lewis Mumford used to talk about this idea that technology is not neutral. That it has built in because technology is the application of science to human problems, which problems get solved in which ways. That's a political concept. Yes. Interesting. Hmm. We have mobilized science in this society mostly through money, through which Mm -hmm. sciences, which endeavors get funded and which don't. Yes. Which Sometimes it's to yield profit. Sometimes it's because the government wants to do something right. But money is this kind of rationing way that we use to guide the progress of science. I get the sense that in Confederation planets, um, they found a different way to drive their striving for knowledge, mm. I think is a, is, a, is a good way of putting it. Sure. That striving for knowledge, I think, is pure and good. But like there needs to be a balancing going on so that you understand why you're doing this striving. And it, and sometimes it seems in our society that 
we just keep lumbering along on these goals that, you know, the market has said that we should, you know, pursue, but no individual person really feels like, you know, do we really need another, you know, ED drug? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Jeremy. (laughs) No No comment. No, you're right. Um, That's perhaps that is part and parcel to the illusion and just one more mountain to climb, one more lesson to learn, one more reason why we're here, quote unquote, you know, um, I'm, I'll, let me read this quick, uh, quick one from Oxel. This is in the man and conscious man, consciousness and understanding transcript, which was channeled by, I believe the circle R group in Detroit in the 60s uh, by Clyde Trepanier. And this is Oxel. This is May 24th, 1961. And there's just a little paragraph in here. Oxel says, man must grow by his own efforts. The more effort he puts forth, the more he can be helped. So you see, beloved friends, It is important for each man to realize the importance of his own efforts in his spiritual growth. Earth man has reached the point where he must must grow spiritually. Many civilizations have come and gone upon your planet. The failure of each civilization has been its lack of balance. Man has not kept pace with his spiritual growth and understanding. He seems prone to put forth great efforts to achieve scientific advancement and neglects his spiritual growth. Thus, the balance becomes more and more unbalanced. And so man has achieved scientific knowledge, but lacks the spiritual understanding to handle the powers that he finds himself in possession of. Thus, he brings destruction upon himself. Earthman again stands at this point. We hope to be able to bring into man's heart a realization of these things that he may bring about his own salvation. And again, they are referencing nuclear weapons, nuclear capabilities here. And if this spoke true in the 60s, it certainly speaks I would say even more true today with the consistent rise of secularism and it just feels it, I don't know, it, the, the message resonates that, that this is continuing, you know, it, it's, it was really interesting, uh, hearing, uh, your recordings of these transcripts, uh, over the last, you know, what, six months, I guess. Mm-hmm. Because as they got closer, because this message was not uh, one that was uh, episodic. It seems consistent in those transcripts. And Mm -hmm. one is mindful of the date that all of these are approaching towards 1962, Cuban Missile Crisis, Mm -hmm. where you do have this real apocalyptic showdown. And it seems like everything that they're talking about, uh, where, you know, we have sort of a, a, a nuclear war <laughs> that is destructive to everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it seems like it, it gets really close and it's avoided, but I see looking back, you know, this buildup of like, 
hey, we're we're doing everything we can to, to you know to help you guys and prevent this, but we see this coming, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's it you know with 50 years of hindsight what have we learned anything from that experience? Yes, we, we I I wouldn't I wouldn't give us, you know, a, a zero <laughs> on the test. Sure. We have learned some stuff and I think it's important to recognize that the fact that we haven't blown ourselves up yet, you know, we get a gold star for that. <laughs> we do get an A for effort at least yeah. on that. There's even well, there's even some good stories out there of a I mean, I can't remember the Russian's name, but this Russian yeah. sub commander, right, that yes. refused to launch nuclear weapons. Um, and there's been happy accidents. There's a book. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name. I will try to find the name of the book, but it tells of all the stories when nuclear war almost started or there was mm-hmm. almost a nuclear catastrophe. And one of them is that like a nuclear bomb like fell out of a plane <laughs> and just happened to be unarmed or they thought it was armed and it just happened, you know, it, it wasn't or it didn't go off when it hit the ground. But they're like, well, there goes Kansas, you know, um, and then it didn't explode. So there's a whole book of these experiences <laughs> of almost, almost nuclear catastrophe. Yeah, it's, uh, what was it? I think it was... Uh... Oh, what's his name? Russell. Um, Russell Crowe. The, no, 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 no. The, the philosopher. <laughs> oh, crap. His name is failing me. But he's, he said something like, um, he's the guy who, who wrote the, uh, I'm, 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 I'm brain farting here, but he said something like, you can expect a man to reasonably walk a tightrope for a couple of minutes, maybe an hour, but for decades, mm. that's, mm. that's hard. And that's kind of how this nuclear tension feels is that we're walking this tightrope and you know we can't we can't walk it indefinitely it would just be impossible to expect somebody to do that yeah. uh present present uh political conditions seem to bear that out i mean yeah. i think we'll probably avoid it again but like you know proliferation is just increasing mm-hmm. yeah yeah you said you had it you you came across an interesting transcript from the eighties about the spiritual development of Yom. Yeah. Let me, let me see if I can find this. I had it. Well, let me, maybe let me bring this up because another, another little input that I had in this conversation was or an idea. What do we get out of spiritual development? What do we get out of spiritual growth? Like what is the end game? And I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I may have some ideas, but um, one, one idea I got out of this book called Encounter in Rendlesham Forest. It was written by Nick Pope and John Burroughs and Jim Penniston. So in this book, Burroughs and Penniston are two Air Force guys that um, over the course of a couple days near Christmas in the 80s, this whole Air Force base has this UAP or this UFO experience, and it's highly documented. And um, there's been a couple books written about it, but Nick Pope does a great book. And... Near the back of the book, Jim Penniston, one of these main Air Force 
uh, I, I think he's an officer, writes kind of his final thoughts. Because Penniston has an interesting experience with this craft. He sees it in a field. He approaches it. And he touches this craft. And in the process of him touching this craft, he gets what he calls a download. And um, that night he goes home and he's got this itch to write down these numbers that are in his head. Turns out it's, it's a binary code. He just writes out page after page after page of these ones and zeros. And um, 30 years later, 40 years later, they find this notebook. No, it's 30 years later. They find his notebook of his ones and zeros and they have it decoded. And uh, it's actually, it actually translates into English, which uh, is pretty sweet. But um, I won't, I won't read what it translates into because you got to read the book for that. But I want to, I want to read kind of a couple paragraphs from his final thoughts because it ties into humanity and spiritual growth. Penniston writes, so the above, so the above is the binary code decipher. He just outlined what the binary code had read, or as I refer to it, the binary enigma. As I have always said from the very beginning of my exposure and witnessing of the incident, it was clear that I could with 100% certainty tell you what the craft was not. The hard part is this. What exactly was it? It was not an airplane in the Jane's Book of Known Aircraft or many other things. What I cannot tell you is exactly what it was. It is just like this binary. How can it be possible to receive such information from contact that night? How could I go home and 24 hours later write these ones and zeros down from memory? How why, and a thousand more questions I have. Under hypnosis, I reveal that they are time travelers from the future. I have a detailed tale of them while under this hypnosis in extreme detail. Then I have the real evidence, the written binary, the day after the event, the glyphs observed on the side of the craft, the pod casts that were made later on the morning after the event. Why does this translate in English and not some alien language that cannot be understood? Why did the aircraft have remotely terrestrial similarities? So how can it be that the physical evidence seems to back up the hypnosis? It is all good food for thought, I guess. Will we really have the answers to this enig enigma? My thoughts on this? A firm yes. He continues, and we're about halfway through. During my investigation and in the course of my research with the time traveler evidence, as it kept coming up at various points when looking for the definitive answers to the Rendlesham, to Rendlesham and the Enigma, the answer to that question is that there are no definitive answers at this point in time. In recent years, I find that Rendlesham is not the only incident which other military have evaluated as time travelers. I find that I am not the only one who has suggested this. 
by looking at the evidence of a particular case. The same thing has happened with Project Avalon. They were talking about the Roswell visitors and Admiral George Hoover said that these visitors were us from the future. They were time travelers. They weren't extraterrestrials. Now, other researchers and whistleblowers have spoken about the same thing, and this is fascinating in itself. But what Admiral George Hoover said the biggest secret really was, it had to do with the abilities and the power of the consciousness of these travelers. Because they were us from the future, what the military authorities had found out was what humans are really capable of. This had been buttoned up really tight. Because if we knew how powerful we really are, how powerful we really could be, then we would cause chaos around us. And this could never be permitted. We could rearrange the reality around us in a way that we wanted to, in the way that, if this is real, the future humans had learned how to do which gives them access to these sorts of incredible abilities, such as time traveling. I thought that was such an interesting idea. Not the time traveling per se. I mean, it's sci-fi cool, as that totally would be. The, the fact that perhaps, one, one conspiracy theory, that perhaps a reason why a lot of these experiences have been covered up is because of this idea. Perhaps, whether they're humans from the future, but perhaps that their cognitive abilities are so much greater than ours. What are you capable of when you reach that level of whatever, mental ability, you know? But I would argue that... that um, I. What comes to mind is that you're not able to get there without the spiritual growth and understanding as well. It's like, it's not a technology per se. It is, it is an ability that springs from an emotional growth and a spiritual growth and, and understanding. Yeah, the, 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 the typical political definition of power is not simply force, but the ability to apply that force to obtain a particular end. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if you've got all the nukes in the world, but nobody still does what you want, do you really have power? No, yeah. you just have the, you just have a veto card in existence. Right. Like that's, that's, I think where the spiritual uh, discipline comes in is the ability to direct that power in ways that serve what you are hopefully more and more understanding as your true interests. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, there was a time in the industrial revolution where we didn't think anything of aerial pollution. Right. Oh yeah. And so the, our, our efforts were maximized on production. And as we learned the costs of that production that we didn't know at the beginning, uh, we had to reckon with it in, in better or worse ways. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, that's kind of where we start to see the disciplining of reality on our concept of ourselves, because that concept of ourselves is our consciousness. It's part of our consciousness. I think that's a big part of what they're talking about 
when they speculate about this alien consciousness that must have been of a different order in order to be able to visit us mm. from afar. Mm. You know, I, t- to me, when you travel those kinds of distances, you are by definition time traveling. Because, oh, yeah, because the, 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 the magnitude that we're talking about, I don't see how that's possible. And with, without either losing <laughs> who you are or being able to maintain a self across vast distances of time and space, right? Like that's the, that's the whole thing. It's maintaining a self across all that, you yeah. know, and that that's a feat of consciousness and discipline. Um, and, and that's just one aspect of this way in which consciousness works. I mean, I think also like, you know, our scientific method is a form of consciousness that we've applied to the world. Um, and it shapes us just as much as it shapes the world. Mm. Right. Like we've generally accepted the scientific notion that if I have an experience, but nobody else has it, it's probably not real. Right. Hmm. Like things need to be reproducible in order to be counted as real. True. That's kind of how we all experience things. Oh, and if we can't reproduce this it, is perfect. then we think the guy's crazy or it totally. hallucinated. Yeah, right? exactly. It's um, people, people believe that they are crazy because, because only they are feeling what they are feeling. And this yeah. is why a group therapy can be so helpful for just, just simply recognizing that other people are having the same issues that you are. You know, and you're working again, through them again, together. Confirmation. You know? Yes, yes, it's com. Yes, exactly. But, 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 but that's not really what the scientific method is about. The scientific method is not, at its fundamental level, designed to do what uh, the the person whom you just read said. It doesn't tell us what things are. It really can only tell us what things aren't. Yeah. Right. It can only disprove things. It can't yes. really prove positively much. Now we've we've inferred things from the negatives, right, and from all of the uh, 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 experiments that have borne out data. Um, but at the end of the day, our uh, logical positivism, right, this idea that um, you know uh, things are only real if they can be proven, like that is a kind of perspective we've adopted from the scientific method to align our experience, our consciousness, I would say, with what science produces. But that also means that it's limited to that heuristic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what I'm talking about with this, um, you, you know, this, this, the scientific method concept of we come up with a hypothesis, we do an experiment, and it either bears out the hypothesis or not. And all that hypothesis is, is were we able to make a prediction? Mm-hmm. When we, when we, when we controlled the variables and changed one, mm-hmm. were we able to make a prediction? Um, that is a very basic way of looking at reality and it consciously skews against a lot of nuance by definition. It has to. Um, and so when we apply that learning to our lives, to our nuanced lives, to our lives that are full of mystery and ambiguity and all that, uh, we are necessarily, this is what I meant earlier about science as a narrative too. That narrative is a kind of, in the same, in the same way that in the Middle Ages, uh, ca- Catholic Christianity was kind of the truth for everybody. And it united everybody together in a common shared consciousness mm-hmm. and therefore a common shared reality mm-hmm. about what existed, how it worked, 
what their role was in it. Mm -hmm. Science has played the same role. We have extracted from it and, and, and added to it to create a common reality that, you know, many people reject, but yes. most people accept, right? That's a wonderful, wonderful viewpoint. I think tying in today's world, today's life with, say, middle-aged uh, Catholicism or Christianity, um, it's just wonderful because <laughs> it, it wraps up. It Because we can look back from it as an outsider and say, oh, that's what they believed back then. And we say believed because we don't say, oh, this is what they knew, you know, because... <laughs> That's a whole other rat's nest of a conversation, exactly. believing yeah. versus knowing. But from an outsider, we can look back. Now, outsiders a thousand years from now, looking back to where we are, what will they say of our scientism? You know, what will they, what will they say of that? You know? Yeah. And I love that word scientism, which is the political mobilization of, of that kind of uh, Popperian logical positivist thought uh, into all realms of culture, mm. politics and all that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's. I won't go down the Sam Harris, Sam Harris route. <laughs> <laughs> There's another aspect to um, the the consciousness is created out of this scientific method, uh, which is a kind of totalitarianism. I would say, mm -hmm. um, the scientific method allows room for competing models of how a thing works. But at the end of the day, the presumption is that one of those models is right and one of those are wrong, or one is more right than the other. And this creates a kind of pressure in our culture to consolidate all explanations into one explanation. I mean, for over, you know, a hundred years, we've had this dream of a grand unified theory mm -hmm. to explain mm -hmm. everything basically. And we keep missing it. And I, and I think one of the reasons why that is, is that a model that takes into account everything has to be as big as everything. And therefore it's not a simplification of the reality we experience. It's just the reality we experience as we get closer and closer to something that is total. Sure. Uh, we get farther and farther away from something that simplifies things enough for us to reason and then use. Right. I would push back on that just a little bit in that some of the beauty of, of, math is its elegance and simplicity and you come into what you would think is a very complex idea like uh what is the what is the gravitational relationship between one body and its and the center uh you know like what is the how does gravity change over space you know, mm -hmm. over space and time. Well, the equation for figuring that out is actually very, it's quite elo eloquent. It's something like the, the distance squared of, I mean, it's just so ridiculously simple. And I think when you say that paradox is, uh, is the, how do you put it? Paradox is no, you know, you're on the path of the spiritual it, when you're it's the you signal know, of the spiritual, it's a signal yeah. of the spiritual. It's like elegance is a signal that you've, you're getting close to, the true relationships of, of things, you know, of things. And, um, two plus two is always four, 
you know, that relationship always exists anywhere you go in the, in the universe, you know? So I think I would say it, maybe it is possible to have a grand unified theory in a very elegant manner, but perhaps we don't have the, the tools to, you know, I, I'm not saying that such a theory is impossible. I'm saying that such a theory by being a theory is always going to be less is always going to be a simplification of the more nuanced reality. For example, like um, there are tons of laws uh, in physics and electrical engineering, for example, where it predicts a discrete, precise outcome mm-hmm. that has mm-hmm. never in actuality been observed, right? Mm. Reality has tended towards that, okay. but there's okay. always some like deviation, right? Oh, there's, and, oh like, sure. We, we accept that. We accept the imprecision of it because why? It's politically useful. It helps us think about reality in a simplified way mm-hmm. that elides or like uh, 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 paints over all of the little deviations, sure. right? And that's incredibly useful. It's incredibly useful, but it's also a distillation of detail okay. into something more simple. Now, I, I understand think that you're, you're right. I think you're right. It, about elegance. And I would all, I mean, I would say that more and more I see the mark of spirit and all of the things that we consider to be abstract and uh, ideal, right? So our political ideals of freedom, even though we imperfectly apply them to apply them to uh, mm-hmm. our lives, mm-hmm. the ideal is what we call is what it calls to us and what we strive towards. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing with these mathematical models. Their precision and their elegance is part of that spiritual aspect that we, as mind body spirit complexes, bring to reality, where we can start to think abstractly and reason laterally about things that otherwise would just be occurring to us in a constant deluge of information and experience. Mm -hmm. We start to think in ways that take us out of, um, let's say the tyranny of linear time and think more broadly about things and sort of like look at the grand picture. I think that's part of what the spirit complex and the reflectiveness of the spirit complex allows us to do. Um, So I definitely see that there's a spiritual element to it. The issue is we also need to recognize that there's a power element to it mm-hmm. and that we are making gan- we, we are making bargains with reality that we need to remember that we made. We need to remember that we distilled reality into this formula so that when the formula doesn't bear out, we can recognize and we're in charge of how we, re- of how we apprehend reality mm-hmm. instead of mm-hmm. giving it over to a mindset that we've sort of put on autopilot. And I think that's where our society always goes. It always goes to this autopilot social construct of reality because in the long run, if the Confederation is right, that yellow ray social construct of reality is going to be part of our social memory complex. And it is going to be something that we're all going to be fully capable of not just using, but manipulating and adding to and all this stuff. But right now, We're all individuals trapped in our Mm -hmm. limited minds and bodies. And we're trying to create this social construct, this shared reality that will allow us to pursue our spiritual evolution. And it's touch and go, right? Like there's, there's, there's power imbalances. There's seemingly intractable problems. There's just straight up fear. I think that it's important to recognize that a lot of our approach 
to reality that we need to get over comes from a basic fear that we have. What is that fear? Fear of death. Fear, fear of, death. of death. I was thinking of this in the shower because all great ideas happen on the shower or on the toilet, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but I was thinking of how our culture would change if we, for better and or for worse, if we all felt or knew that this was not the only life we lived. Because I can see some, first, I can see some positives. One thing I always thought and why I always figured myself as like a maximal freedom guy is that if I believe in reincarnation and I perhaps I didn't have control over that reincarnation, where would I end up in my next life? And would I want the most opportunity possible to make sure I could build the life that I wanted to build? Um, I wonder what that would mean as a culture, you know, writ large, if, if everyone felt that way, oh yeah, I've got to do this again, but where am I going to end up? I don't know. So I better make sure that, you know, if you are dealt a bad hand, that you have a helping hand, you know, but then on the flip side, if we know that we're going to do this again, does that mean we take life a little less seriously? We value it a little less. You're like, oh, we, he can do it again. Let's just off him. He's a bad guy. He's a bad person. You know, I kind of wonder. The, the, the Confederation, or at least Ra, uh, those of Ra seem to have an opinion on this, that uh, they, there's a lot of conversation between Don and those of Ra about what experience in third density was like before the subconscious was veiled from the conscious, right? The unconscious mind, the deep mind was veiled from the conscious mind. And that plays a huge role in polarization, which is the cornerstone of third density's function and mm -hmm. spiritual evolution. And they said that before the veiling, uh, you had precisely the, the latter problem that you were talking about, Ooh. that because people saw the infinity of everything and how life didn't end, it was very hard to focus them on the hard work of transformation and progressing towards fourth density. Um, that's a very, in some ways, it's a very tough thing to hear because it, you know, it basically says that we have to go through some rough stuff in order to grow. But I think that's a lot of what I am starting to recognize about Confederation philosophy is that we need to realize that just like we talk about, you know, survival of the fittest in um, like, basic evolution of animals and plants and life. And we, we describe it often in harsh terms, right? The way that uh, this evolutionary force molds life mm -hmm. into more and more complex uh, 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 forms. Um, there is an element in which we need to see uh, some of the harshness of our third density lives as productive. And I think, the Confederation always wants to remind us of that without, here's the point, uh, without imposing some sort of moralistic idea of, of, of the deserts of that suffering or pain, right? Like the idea that they often say is that, look, transformation is uncomfortable because change is uncomfortable. And if you look at how kind of life works from a, from a grand level, it's all about homeostasis, right? It's all about 
creating some sort of organism that can maintain a consistency within itself, independent of the environment to certain, Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. And that any kind of thing that makes that homeostatic entity, uh, change is going to necessarily imbalance it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be not a pleasant experience. Um, and I think it's the same way in the psychic environment of third density. Now that doesn't mean that it's good that people suffer, right? Like we still have that moral and ethical concept that we're all kind of in society in a bargain to lessen the, 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 the net suffering of everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not talking in some sort of Jerry, Jeremy Bentham, like, you know, utilitarianism, just, just in general, we want everybody to be as happy as possible, but at a certain level, as spiritual seekers, we need to understand that, um, the transformation that we seek is going to be obtained at a price. Everything worthwhile is obtained at a price. Well, when you say we want everyone to be as happy as possible, happiness doesn't mean that you've just got an easy life. I don't think that's where happiness comes from. Happiness seems to come from a place of feeling worthy, content, feeling gratitude. And yeah, op- happiness is a bad word for me to use, honestly. Well, well, no, but it has an co- important connotation in our culture where that's the, that drives self-help books, right? Yeah. The whole self-help genre, which is a huge selling genre is you've got to find your happiness, you know? Mm-hmm. And I know we've talked about our, you know, the differences of, of Jordan Peterson, but one thing I thoroughly enjoy about Jordan Peterson is he does not, he does not position happiness as, as a, he positions it as this is hard, you know, and you've got to, you've got to kind of lean into it. Life is hard. And here are some steps you can take to, you know, deal with the challenges, but it's, you know, for me, yeah, happiness comes from feeling gratitude, feeling content, uh, feeling like I'm worthy, but all of those feelings come from dealing with challenges and overcoming challenges and feeling like that I have some kind of forward momentum in the way that I am growing, the way that I'm understanding the world and how my understanding is changing. Because what I think and feel and believe now is very different than what I thought, felt, and believed five years ago. So, you know, that's what I want everyone else to be happy as well. But I want them to be my version of happy, which is that they are yeah, also exactly. gro- they are also growing. There you go. You know, but some, but that's not how everyone feels happy. <laughs> no, um, no, it isn't. Um, I think that I think that I think you're getting at exactly what I was trying to get at, which is that we want everybody to be happy as long as it's stable, <laughs> 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 right? Like yes. I don't like right now. You're seeing what happens when workers, for example, feel a little bit too comfortable, right? which is that wages go up. You can't find anybody to, to fill job openings, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like this is part of a, it's sad, but it, there's a discipline that comes from needing a job in order to survive that when from the, from the capitalist point of view, when that discipline breaks down and workers don't need the job as much as they used to, or they can find other ones and it creates upward pressure on prices or, or wage prices, I guess you could say, uh, it, it creates a kind of uh, panic. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's hard to and, find. Uh, it's hard to get the from, from my point of view, that panic is good, right? Like mm. I want, because, you know, 
I I have my own politics mm-hmm. and I want to see worker power increase. But like I can understand how like from depending on how you look at things, it can also be seen as a problem. Um, sure. And so like th- that's what I mean is that everybody be minimally happy so we can keep things stable. I like that you bring up the uh, the worker, you know, the worker issue, if you want to call it, has the wrong connotation, but the worker issue. Um, because there, there certainly feels like there's an imbalance right now. Um, I like to see, I just like to see a good balance. And growing up with a, a guy who ran, you know, a fencing business for for years, I got to see the other side of the equation of like from the mm-hmm. owner's perspective of just constantly feeling stressed and uh, overburdened. And then feel like that responsibility of, of um, you know, having to take care or having to pay and be responsible for the well-being of all these guys' families and whatnot. But, um, but right now it's uh, yeah, it's tough for employers um, to keep, you know, to keep good talent, to find good talent. Um, but, but, but I think of balance, I just think of balance. It's like, is there a good balance right now? You know? And uh, no, there's certainly not a good balance. <laughs> but, but, but what were we just saying? Like it's imbalance that creates the, the, the motive force for change to occur. It's that discomfort that creates the conditions where we can achieve, hopefully, if we're, if we're lucky, a better balance, yeah. right? A new balance that's even more stable. And yet it's that, it's that desire for stability in the first place that's kind of not necessarily the best friend of the conscious seeker. Yeah. Stability of all kinds is kind of a... Uh, illusion <laughs> right isn't it it's a um, yeah it's a narrative that we tell ourselves <laughs> um yeah the, the, this and this is that is precisely the sense in which i was talking about science being a narrative is that it, this is an ideal that we're going to uh, aspire to um but what is human progress but the transformation of ideals mm-hmm. in in a way that changes our consciousness yeah i mean that it, it, it very much is about consciousness all the time, uh, whether you're looking at it politically, scientifically, spiritually. Uh, and I'm really interested in the way that these collective beliefs that we have, that we take for granted, uh, affect what we think is possible, right? They, they limit us. And, and, and like, don't get me wrong, those limitations are useful. The question is, do we recognize that we impose the limitation or not? Yes. Because if we recognize that we impose a limitation, now we're using a model as a lens to look at reality and draw certain conclusions from what the lens shows us. But then we could put another lens on and we can look at it from another perspective. And that is very much a core of how I approach Confederation philosophy. Because to me, that philosophy is one lens and it doesn't always tell me what I need to know about life. Hmm. It, it just doesn't hmm. like, uh, <clears throat> I don't think they would ever claim that it should. Yeah. Uh, the bottom line is that a unified perspective is not all, like you. Can, we are at a level of development where we are not expected to keep that foremost in mind all the time. That it is productive, in fact, to not keep that foremost in mind and to make mistakes and uh, to achieve distortions and imbalances. Uh, that, and then this is where we start to get into good and bad, right? Is that good? 
doesn't matter. Yeah. It is the way it is from that perspective. Right? That is a whole other session I want to talk to you about. It, because if I just get on the Reddit, uh, law of one Reddit subreddit, um, quite often there are posts and comments about service to others and service to self. And there's mm-hmm. constantly a tinge of ju- not a tinge. It's there's a clear judgment of service to self and how service to others is like the best way and everyone's service to others. And, you know, and I, I kind of chuckle cause I'm like, I think if you will forgive me, I think you're missing the point. You're, yeah. It is not our role to judge service to others or service to self. Now you can do it from, from like a relative judgment. You say from my perspective of like wanting to help others, your narcissistic ass is like really making me stressed out, you know, and I don't like that. Okay. That's fair enough. But saying that you are bad, that this is bad. That is everywhere. (laughs) That is everywhere in this, uh, in the, uh, in the law of one community, which I find entirely humorous because it is, it is almost, I, I'm sorry. I thought it was clear from the beginning that all are aspects of God. You know, that means the dark as well as a light. And yeah, I don't know. You see how these narratives get mobilized <laughs> for our own purposes yeah. to, to, to create morality. Uh, oh, to create morality. Out of, yes, yes. Yeah, so th- that that's the thing is that... Um, this is why this is a big reason why I wanted to build a spiritual community on different terms so we could get beyond the questions that come up on that subreddit or that mm, come up on Brainforth, mm, right? Sure. Because until you achieve a vulnerability and intimacy with another person, there's only a certain level at which you're going to be able to, just, to talk about these things. And it's going to be ascribing to your position the good traits mm. and ascribing to the other's <laughs> position, the bad traits, totally. right? This very debatey kind of, kind of, kind of rhetoric, this, yeah. this, this way of uh, analyzing things. Yeah. And I think that this is why I, 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 for a long time, I, when people ask me, what is the law of one? I say, I don't say it, it means that all is one. I said, I, I often say it means the perspective that all is one is available and useful. It is not my position Mm. to tell you whether you should accept that perspective. It is simply a perspective that is available. You decide how you mobilize that into action. And I would also point out that um, I don't know what episode we read it on, but there was that one episode where they were talking about, um, where Quo was talking about, you know, the difference between right and wrong and mine and not mine. If you have this perspective that, how you interpret and judge reality is the result of the lens, the model, uh, the, 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 the philosophy that you're applying to it, then you recognize the role that you have played in creating what you're judging, right? Yes. And you say, that's mine, that's not mine, instead of that's right and yeah. that's wrong. Because when it's right and wrong, that applies to all the other people. Yes. But when it's mine or not mine, it is about determining what I want and using the choice-making aspect of that to polarize. Yes. And that's what makes it so different. I think in fact that this is what this is what I mean um by the totalitarian nature of science is that it encourages this idea that there's one right explanation and that all other explanations yeah. are wrong. And if or you're not right, right you're wrong. <laughs> no one likes yep. being wrong. <laughs> Bringing this back and trying to bring it full circle at least as far as how to keep things in perspective. Yeah. 
to not get caught up in the like the new technology that only aids in your distraction. How to stay mm-hmm. present? How do all of that? How do we deal with nuclear weapons and not just want to kill each other? You know, and I can't speak for anyone else but myself, but I know that for me, and this is just such a challenge, is just trying to keep top of mind that the the, the broader perspective of not what I'm doing, but why, and not just like why mm-hmm. am I okay? I'm doing this to raise my family, but in in its biggest picture. I'm simply here to learn some lessons and whatever challenges come my way. Okay. I'm due. I'm, those are lessons I need to learn. If they're lessons I continually get, well, maybe it's a lesson I, I need to put higher on my priority uh, so I can knock that one off my list. Cause it's a consistent theme, but, but in general it's, and I try to, I, I try, that's the key word there. I try to, to how do I say overlay that idea onto others? And I say, they have their lessons. I have mine. They have theirs. We all have the lessons that we are all working on. I do my best not to judge instead of judge. I just ignore and try to just, you know, keep away from certain people. But, but, um, you're such a good boy. It's a, (laughs) it can be a struggle sometimes. (laughs) Well, Well, you can also see like, when even even in the realm of mine and not mine, the judgment is implicit, right? Like it, it it almost kind of flows out of us. We can't think in any other terms but binary. Mm. Yeah, and it's I think I think part of that is just the way that logic doesn't map onto the spiritual perfectly, but I think part of it is that we live in a society in which that kind of judgment is encouraged. Yes. And I think science is part science in a very uh, particular concept of what is rational is at work there. Hmm. Um, hmm. There's a um, there's an essay that I uh, read about 10 years ago that very, very much influenced uh, my my kind of understanding of all of this. I would encourage the listener to at least consider reading it. Um, it's by a guy named, uh, Ron Pruer. I'll put it in the, um, in the show notes, but the name of the essay is grand diversifying theory. And he's making this, he's making this point, um, that we need a flexibility in order to be able to actually apply these ideas to our lives in ways in which we are applying them instead of they're being applied kind of in spite of us. Mm-hmm. Um, do you mind if I read oh, some of it? Get her done. I hope I hope this is I hope this is not a huge uh, course correction from what we've been talking about. Um, I hope and I hope this uh, excerpt makes sense. So here we go. What we call quote science, I call one kind of science, one grounded in the emotion of fear and the political need to maintain stability. To be fair, so was the science it replaced: medieval Christian theology, and that science was worse in that it was more resistant to direct sense experience overturning established mental models. But in other ways, medieval Christian theology was not as bad. I call our present science Cartesian science, after one of its founders, René Descartes, who got the idea from a non-ordinary experience in which an angel, quote-unquote, told him that the way to conquer nature is through number and measure. 
This is no different from Jehovah telling Moses that the way to conquer other religions is by prohibiting graven images. It's a suggestion of esoteric origin to arrange experience in a specific way to cause a specific deep change in human mental models and human behavior. Our descendants will marvel, not that Descartes saw an angel, but that he was so twisted that he consciously wanted to conquer nature. And his idea worked, Cartesian science, by focusing strictly on the measurable and quantifiable, calls forth the enormous power of machines, while excluding emotions and values, except the emotion of taking pleasure in turning things into numbers, and the value of wanting numbers to be better. So if you, quote, love the forest, that's worth nothing compared to even one of the millions of board feet of lumber we can produce by cutting down that forest. And if I prefer a hand-driven tool to a motorized tool that applies 20 times as much as many angular foot-pounds per second, but I have trouble putting my preference into words, let alone into numbers, my sentiments are dismissed. And if you'd rather live in a world where people make things at home, by hand, at their own pace, than a world where factories full of numb, micromanaged laborers crank out 100 times as many things, all identical and built to commanded written specifications— then you are romanticizing an impossible and inferior past, if, possibly in quali- if possibility and quality are defined in exclusively Cartesian terms. And if after a few years of this, some people feel that the whole world is somehow terribly wrong, then they're just being ungrateful and irrational, because the numbers just keep getting better. The word, quote, rational is confusing. Sometimes it means careful, precise thinking. And sometimes it means exclusively Cartesian thinking. The hidden message is that there is that these two things are positively related and they can be, but they don't have to be. And sometimes they are negatively related as I'm showing here by using precise thinking to break down the Cartesian worldview. Fixation on number and measure is only the beginning. Cartesian science includes only experience that stays the same across place, time, culture, and perspective. If an experiment comes out differently in different places and times or for different people, it is excluded. If an experience cannot be made uniform among observers, it is, it is excluded. Cartesian science demands that the experience be controllable and predictable, and that we, the experiencing perspectives, be perfectly interchangeable. So it focuses our attention into the small part of our world where experience is controllable and predictable and uniform. And it builds technologies that create more such worlds, like a TV show that 10 million people see all the same, instead of seeing their 10 million varied lives. Cartesian science is totalitarian. It commands that there be only one mental model, which all people must hold in their heads. It permits competing theories, but they are in a death match. They may not make peace or go on perpetually using different models. Sooner or later, they must fight it out until there is only one theory, which everyone will then hold identically. Uh, and it just keeps, should I go on? I think that is, uh, <clears throat> that's a good place to stop. Yeah, yeah. But that is a perfect example of scientific development sans spiritual development. Exactly. Taking scientific development to just one you know, edge, <laughs> to one side, and keep pushing and not having... Well, even now, they are running... I know I hate using the term quantum physics and when we're talking about this because it's so, such an overused term. Most people have no idea what it is, including me. And... But I have heard that quantum physicists are starting to understand that there is no experiment in which you cannot t- 
take the perspective of the experimenter into, mm-hmm. you know, into account. Um, and that consciousness, there's something to do with consciousness and its effect on reality, you know, and it's, it's almost as if we are reaching our limits of science. I shouldn't say limits. We are reaching a point of scientific development where we are being, dare I say, forced to recognize a mm-hmm. spiritual element. And I, I wish this would just get leaned into, you know, because what yeah, if they take the Cartesian method, <clears throat> Cartesian science to quantify and qualify consciousness <laughs> you know i mean what if they what if you can measure with numbers and <clears throat> you know what if you can measure with numbers a consciousness you know but that that's the whole thing is that consciousness is by definition by our definition infinite yes we should not expect to be able to quantify consciousness yeah. we should not expect in fact uh uh built into this cartesian scientific model is the idea of essentially thinity, right? The idea that mm, there's a mm. bunch of separate things all interacting when from a unified perspective, we know that that is not the full truth, mm-hmm. or we at least have the, have the, have the, have a way of understanding uh, alter, an alternative truth. And that uh, we should expect that a system designed to explain how separate things interact will, will sort of sidestep the way in which their unified nature uh, uh, kind of uh, resolves a lot of the paradoxes that science creates. I mean, it seems like we can't go small enough to get to a core fundamental particle of, of, of reality yeah. of, of matter. Right. Yeah. It seems like, it seems like no matter how much uh, smaller we go, there's more constituent elements. At some point we're going to figure out that it seems like it's kind of fractal. Right. Yeah. And the point isn't to say, oh, it's fractal, therefore we don't look anymore. The point is to say, how can we use different lenses to resolve things in different ways so that we can continue to strive forward instead of get bogged down in some sort of totalitarian explanation that kind of is a, is a sort of death, right? Like if we have a if we have an ultimate explanation for everything, there's no reason to strive anymore. The mystery mm-hmm. is what pulls us forward. Yeah. And so even, even um, on its own terms, uh, science needs another element. And this is part of um, what that Carl Jung essay or, or piece that I quoted uh, either last episode or episode before that was talking about this outside perspective that contextualizes the system that we're in. We need some sort of way of transcending that and uh, introducing into that closed system infinite values that then direct us on the use of that closed system and those finite resources to infinite ends, right? Mm -hmm. To ends that are, to the extent that they are infinite, spiritual, Mm -hmm. right? And that they transcend life and death and even maybe our civilization that we can start to think more broadly about consciousness. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm out of coffee and ideas. <laughs> that uh, yeah, um, we could yeah. spin our wheels on this a little bit more. But if uh, I, I would also be okay with you know 
letting letting the listener uh, giving them well, a few minutes back. Before we, I mean, before <laughs> we wrap up, I mean, I I kind of told you how I, how I try to keep things in perspective and keep you know keep maybe if not my life in balance, but just keeps me sane, you know, in the madness of the world. How do you? keep things in perspective i mean if you're when you start to run into a challenge do you just get fully absorbed in it are you able to keep a a kind of that side perspective or how do you how do you navigate this that's a fair question yeah 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 i'm talking about your in your experience you know i i feel like i i feel like that's exactly what i've been talking about um i i have found it very useful uh, in the in the persistent and constant challenge of squaring hmm. a spiritual goal, a spiritual perspective, a spiritual ideal with the fallen material world that I happen to occupy mm-hmm. that has a bunch of drama and suffering and imbalance and injustice, I find it very useful to not hold myself to the requirement that I have one explanation that answers both mm-hmm. in all cases at all times. I, I, I have, I have, <laughs> I have opinions and I want to uh, be clear that they're my opinions, but I do think that this thing that Ron Pruer is talking about with respect to the ability to take on and take off perspectives, the ability to recognize our creative responsibility in perception that is, in my opinion, what catalysis is all about. Catalysis is about the way that we use the body's location in space-time as a feedback mechanism for spiritual lessons that the mind is working through. And we need mm-hmm. to recognize that that feedback mechanism uh, is valuable on its own terms, independent of whether or not it creates a balanced, stable reality out there. Mm-hmm. That sometimes... Uh, we're not always going to be in the mindset that of, 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 of learning our lessons in a straightforward way. We need to have compassion for ourselves that because there's not one, there's not a single way of approaching reality that we always can fall back to a different way of looking at it and therefore change our perspective, zoom out, zoom in. Uh, as as I often talk about the Confederation talking about this 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 concept of focus being able to change the level at which we're looking at reality and therefore to make sense of things at a different level that maybe we can't achieve at the other level right mm-hmm. that's what that and mm-hmm. that that's basically what I'm talking about I, notice that I'm not giving you or the listener a particular perspective to to adopt it's it's right? terrible. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not very useful because except well, I just if like, you take responsibility. Well, see, I just like hearing how other people's experiences, uh, or at least the way they uh, articulate their experiences, because sometimes I can say, oh, that's very different for me. Or sometimes yeah. you'll be like, oh, I do something similar. I just never thought of it that way, which is most yeah. of my conversations with you. You just, you put ideas that are kind of in my head and you have a way of articulating them that would so that they will crystallize in my mind in kind of a more tangible way. You know, I certainly hope so because sometimes, you know, I can float off into the ethers. So it's nice to know <laughs> that like, I'm talking about something people can at least, you know, somewhat recognize. Yeah. But I think we need, I, I, I guess 
for me, there was a point in my life where I was like, I have to give up on the fact that any one explanation is going to contextualize adequately all things that I experience. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to happen. I need to be flexible. And by achieving a flexibility in that perspective, for example, if you have one philosophy, one lens that you apply to life that always says what things are and aren't, that allows for you to always contextualize yourself in reference to that. Mm-hmm. So once you adopt a variable lens, a variable model for approaching things, you need to be able to maintain a self across different explanations, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I mean about taking responsibility for your own perception, your own creative act of applying a lens, applying a filter to reality, mm-hmm. um, recognizing that you're doing it, that it's not doing, it's not doing it to you. You're doing it to, to, to the world. If you, if you remember that, then that will impel you, I believe, to look for a deeper self than what can be explained by a mere lens, a mere theory, a mere perspective. And once you have a real self that, uh, that is static and grounded in the creator, in the deepest truth that you know, not even that you know, that you feel, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Remember, absolute truth requires no proof, like Carl Jung said in that excerpt. Mm-hmm. It is its own proof when you have that feeling that deep. Find that deep part, and then you can put on and take off lenses without challenging your own existence, right? Yes. I think that's where people really run into it is that if I if I drop the scientific lens or the Christian fundamentalist lens or any of these lenses, then who am I? Yes. And that's always the question, right? It was always a question to begin with. I think um, that is a great place to wrap up. <laughs> Because that is that is a great. Otherwise, we're just going to be unwrapping that for another hour. I think that is a great place, because uh, that's just a great final idea that I can simmer on, I can chew on. Ultimately, I think that's what the Confederation uh, thinks is a big part of our power is our ability to maintain a self across transformation, right? In consciousness, in in ideas, all that. So yeah, thanks. Uh, I. It's something that's very important to me, and I, I hope that the listener will understand that it's just my point of view. I'm riffing off of things that I've learned, both from the Confederation and not, but it feels right to yeah. me. Yeah. Well, it was another good one. Time to get our Sunday started, huh? Yes. I need to go help my uh, help my kid go potty. <laughs> yeah, we've we've maintained a, co- a coherent podcast all, uh, over multiple interruptions, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's good. Um, but thanks so much, listener, for uh, sticking with us through all of these uh, meandering thoughts. Thank you, Ryan, uh, for the idea for this topic. I think it was a great thing to Thank explore. Thank you for discussing. Absolutely. And uh, until we uh, speak again, dear listener, stay in the love and light. <laughs>